Welcome to a new episode of EvalEdge, a podcast series by the European Evaluation Society that focuses on cutting-edge topics in evaluation. My name is Marco Lorenzoni, and today I will be your host together with my colleague Tom Ling, President of the European Evaluation Society. Today we are delighted to have with us in our virtual studio Mrs. Gita Batra. Since 2015, Mrs. Batra is Chief Evaluator and Deputy Director for Evaluation at the Independent Evaluation Office of the GEF, the Global Environment Facility. She has over 25 years of experience in international development, including 15 years in evaluation. Before joining the GEF, she was with the World Bank's Private Sector Development Department for seven years, from 98 to 2005, and then with International Finance Corporation as head and chief evaluator for the IFC Advisory Services Portfolio. Gita has co-authored books and articles and managed over 100 evaluations. Welcome, Gita, and thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Tom and Marco, for inviting me to this podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. Gita, during this podcast, we will ask you about Jeff's experience in using innovative methods in evaluation in view of contributing to transformational change. To introduce the discussion, let me ask you about the way Jeff operates in using these innovative methods. Thanks, Marco. Um, recognizing the potential of innovative methods such as remote sensing, GIS, we at the IEO have been integrating these into various evaluations over the past 10 years through a fairly incremental approach. We first started by integrating these methods as complementary to other evaluation methods always based on the evaluation questions that we're seeking to answer. So 10 years ago, we used basic image analysis in our country evaluations. Then subsequently, we invested in our capacity. We hired staff. And today, remote sensing and GIS is mainstreamed into all our IEO evaluations. We've collaborated with global institutions, universities of repute and expertise, in this area with a view to reducing our costs and at the same time ensuring high quality evaluative evidence. So what are we using these tools for? Remote sensing and GIS are being used to answer questions directly relinked to evaluation criteria, you know, the standard DAC criteria, relevance, efficiency, value for money, which is what several donors are always interested in, and of course, in demonstrating results. Above all, it's actually helped us deal quite a bit with uh, methodological challenges, such as absence of baseline data in selecting the right counterfactuals, addressing sampling bias, etc. We've also used these tools to identify drivers of such changes. Um, further, in the last four years or so, uh, we've gone a step further and we've combined remote sensing data with household service uh, survey data, such as the LSMS of the World Bank, uh, in several of our country case studies. Uh, this is actually to address both environmental issues as well as socioeconomic impacts at the same time. I'd like to highlight, if I may, uh, a few examples to indicate how this is actually used. Would that be okay? Yes, please. So, for example, on the fundamental question of, of relevance, um, are Jeff biodiversity interventions in the key biodiversity hotspot areas? So where is Jeff intervening? 
Um, in the Lake Victoria region, where Jeff had interventions for a very long time, there was no baseline data to actually assess the trajectory of outcomes over time, and GIS and remote sensing data helped us do that. In an evaluation of protected areas, it helped with selection of counterfactuals and assessing impact. Importantly, in a fragile and conflict-affected uh, situation, such as Liberia, it helped us look at Jeff's sustainability over time in Sapo National Park. And it's, so we've also used this in assessing value for money uh, using economic valuation of ecosystem services uh, in impact of sustainable forest and biodiversity intervention. Now, we've also used drones for classification and validation of satellite-derived change in land use uh, cover in hard-to-reach and conflict-affected situations. We're also increasingly using text analytics, such as artificial intelligence, to mine and extract important information from thousands of Jeff project documents. You know, Jeff's been around since 1992. And perform content analysis. And this has substantially enhanced our efficiency as well as accuracy in analysis. We do recognize like any other innovation, innovative methods come with risks. And there's clearly no substitute at all for getting information from the ground, such as from beneficiaries. But these tools are a good first step, and they're a very good complement to other evaluation methods. I would never, however, advise anybody to 100% rely on these tools. Thank you. That was really most interesting. In the recent book that you co-edited together with the Jeff IEO director, Juha Rito, called Transformational Change for People and the Planet, a book that I'm really enjoying reading, I have to say at the moment. Uh, that book reflects on how evaluation can contribute to transformational change, uh, particularly now at times of global crises, such as climate change, pandemic, loss of ecosystems, biology and biological diversity, growing inequalities, and so on. And as Indra Naidu says in one of the chapters, evaluators are not isolated from changes. One proof of this is the chapter you wrote with Janine Garcia and Senya Temnenko called Transformational Change for Achieving Scale, where, based on evaluative evidence, you conclude that transformational change, quote, requires ambition and design, a supportive policy environment, sound project design and implementation, partnerships and multi-stakeholder participation, and that successful transformations adopt a systems approach and address multiple constraints to attain environmental and other socioeconomic impacts. Could you please elaborate on how evaluation findings confirm the need for a systemic and multi-factor approach to achieve change? Thanks so much, Tom, and thank you for uh, mentioning the book on transformational change for people and the planet, Evaluating Environment and Development, um, co-edited by Yuha Uito and myself. It actually came about as a result of a conference we had a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, uh, in Prague. The most interesting and fascinating part of this is it's exposed the thinking of a lot of new authors in this book. Um, 
It's recently been published by Springer as an open access book. So anyone who's listening to this podcast, please go out there and download it for free. You can download it in its entirety or even just chapters. Um, Throughout this book, uh, the authors have highlighted uh, the importance of assessing the effectiveness and impact of policies, strategies, programs, and projects um, that are aimed to produce transformational change for both the environment as well as human well-being. And it points out to the importance that the evaluation function needs to be able to develop methodologies that address the linkages and the interactions between human and natural systems and how actions in the development sphere affect the environment and vice versa. And the SDGs have actually prodded our thinking in that direction to a great degree. Overall, some of the main conclusions from the book clearly require evaluators to take a more holistic view. This means we first need to acknowledge, as you just mentioned, that every evaluation takes place and every intervention takes place in a broader context. Context really matters. So at the IEO, we've done a series of evaluations now in different country contexts, the least developed countries, fragile and conflict-affected situations, Uh, small island developing states, et cetera. Now, these evaluations have clearly shown that each group of countries has its own specificities that can influence project performance as well as outcomes. So we need to adopt a more systems approach to evaluation, wherein the interventions that are being evaluated, be it policies, strategies, programs, or projects, They all need to be seen as part of a landscape in which they operate and interact with other interventions. I'm going to go and draw to the specific chapter that you've alluded to, Tom, in this, which is our work on transformational change. So in our work on transformational change, we did a study. We developed an understanding of the pathways to achieving depth and scale, which are both very important the important influencing factors, and the broader systems within which such change actually takes place. We realized, and this was an ex-post evaluation of projects that had already been pretty transformative, we realized that evaluating such change needs a clear understanding of the theory of change, which we often actually had to go back and reconstruct for projects even though they were transformative, they they didn't have clear theories of change at the outset. We had to do this to be able to clearly think through the systems and the interrelationships across the many influencing factors driving both the change as well as the process of change. What did we see? We clearly noted that ambition in design, in other words, a clear desire for a system-wide transformation to address fundamental market or systemic distortions, addressing reforms through policy and regulatory reform, good project execution and implementation, well-known factors, and some mechanisms to ensure sustainability, both financial as well as institutional. 
And what we've also learned, it doesn't take a large project or a ton of resources, often medium-sized projects, typically recorded between one and two million um, of, of Jeff funding, was enough to actually drive such transformational change. I'm going to um, just reflect on a, on a small example of, of such a medium-sized project. Uh, and this was the um, development of the wind energy program in Uruguay. Uh, it was launched in 2007, basically to eliminate barriers to the development of commercially viable wind energy investment. The country had almost exhausted its hydropower potential, and the program seeked to create an enabling policy framework for wind energy coupled with technical assistance, and very soon it saw a good amount of private sector investment. I won't go through the details, but as of late 2021, nearly 100% of Uruguay energy comes now from renewable sources, including a third from wind. This example, it highlighted the need for a change at a broad systems level to achieve a transformative change. So what does this mean for evaluation? And what did we do with this? We actually started advising the Jeff to apply this framework ex ante if projects, if there was the ambition for projects and programs to actually drive transformational change. Evaluation helped us understand the conditions, the processes, and after testing this on about 30 projects, we felt and were confident that our framework actually captured all the critical elements. This approach to transformational change, I'm happy to note, was significantly embodied in the subsequent replenishment documents in JEF 7 and in JEF 8. We've just completed the JEF 8 replenishment process, and I don't know if you've seen, but JEF had a record replenishment this year of $5.25 billion over four years. And I want to say that our evaluations played a very significant role in the replenishment process with all our policy recommendations having been absorbed in the programming directions. Thank you so much, Bita, for, for these examples that uh, uh, really uh, clarifies a lot about, uh, uh, about the questions that we are asking. I would like to ask you something slightly different, um, and I refer to uh, to your blog, to something that you wrote at the very beginning of the of the COVID pandemic, and I quote: "The COVID nineteen crisis has turned impact evaluators' lives upside down. Suddenly, we can visit the sites we are responsible for, interview participants in person, or otherwise conduct assessment as we normally would." And this necessitates unprecedented creativity to ensure that the critical role impact evaluation serves is not left by the wayside. Now, uh, as, you, as you remember uh, in, uh, in your previous response, uh, the Jeff was among the very first pioneering organizations that started experimenting and then consolidating the use of geospatial information evaluation. And this well before the pandemic. And then uh, your practice in using satellite data allowed the Jeff to continue evaluating even during the last two years, and also the use of other additional uh, technologies. When interviewing you for another podcast series at the end of 2020, you may remember, I asked you, how is the crisis changing evaluation methods? Now my question is the reverse, is 
how is the use in evaluation of highly technological methods is changing the evaluation professions and the access to the markets for consulting companies? What are you observing based on your experience with Jeff? Thanks, Marco. I remember that question on, you know, when we first started. And actually, the, the market has transformed in several ways. You know, the, the use of these highly technological tools and methods, along with the large spectrum of data sources, um, it has immense potential for the field of evaluation. And it's changed, I think, the evaluation profession, as I see it over the last few years, in several ways. So first, and quite importantly, there's growing awareness now of how these innovative methods can address public demand for accountability, how they address m and &E challenges, um, promote efficiency gains, increase accuracy of analysis and productivity. Of course, despite some skepticism, um, you know, related to data privacy issues, costs, or just in some cases, just resistance to change from evaluators who don't want to change the way we do business, right? Um, second, uh, it's leading evaluation departments uh, to understand the need for building the knowledge and skills of evaluators to increase familiarity with these tools. These technical methods need domain experts to operate. And even if you're able to acquire this expertise, which a lot of evaluation units have done, evaluators still need to understand the use, the application of these tools. Are we using it to address the right kinds of evaluation questions? And above all, interpreting the results. What do these mean for in, in terms of answering the evaluation question? So here in the IEO at the Jeff, we've been um, consistently training our evaluators in, you know, getting university staff, et cetera, to train them in understanding the application and interpretation of the results from these geospatial analyses. Another important change is the recognition that evaluation teams need multidisciplinary expertise um, because domain and subject matter experts Methods experts and evaluators all need to be brought together to successfully complete complex evaluations. And we've seen, you know, it's only becoming more complex. We're talking about systems approaches. We are talking about integration. We're talking about links between environment and socioeconomic factors. So, for example, a thematic evaluation of the impact of support to protected areas um, using innovative methods required us to bring on board forestry experts, biologists, economists, evaluators, and data scientists. So evaluation offices, as I see it, are gradually embracing this change. They are hiring data scientists, they're hiring geospatial experts, in addition to subject matter experts. And this is a very encouraging step. Now this, of course, has implications uh, for investments in evaluation resources in terms of staff, consultants, equipment, software. Um, Well-resourced evaluation departments can, of course, afford this, um, and they're already adopting a lot of these emerging methods. But others, such as smaller offices, as well as those in developing regions, um, which have limited resources or limited access, 
they can still utilize these methods through collaboration and effective partnerships uh, with a number of academic and research institutions. And that's how we built our practice over time. We engaged a lot with, with universities. In this space, uh, to come to your point on consulting firms, uh, there are ample opportunities for consulting firms, particularly those that deal with data science and geospatial analysis, big data analysis, text analytics. For example, we partnered with Aid Data. Aid Data had first started as a lab of the College of William and Mary, but today it's its own standalone, uh, for geocoding Jeff intervention sites and spatial impact analyses. Besides specialized consulting firms, traditional evaluation consulting firms I'm noticing are also gearing up for the demand for innovative methods. And they've also been hiring quite a few methods experts. So you do see that in the proposals that they send over. I'm a big believer in partnering with universities and students um, where most innovation actually happens. So this is the future we all need to embrace. Right? We, where we need to use old and new data. We need new data science methods as well as conventional evaluation approaches. And I think we all need to be ready to embrace this change now. And thank you so much, Gita. That was really interesting and, and enlightening. Um, and that uh, brings us to the end of this podcast episode with Ms. Gita Batra, who's the Chief Evaluator and Deputy Director for Evaluation at the Independent Evaluation Office of the GEF. That's the Global Environment Facility. And a big thank you also to Marco Lorenzoni on this, his first podcast, not his first ever, which he's very experienced, but his first with our EES podcast. And uh, that's a great start for youth. Thank you, Marco. And thanks again, Gita, for this interview. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in again. And we hope that you will join us again for future episodes. <laughs>